Now, if you would, please turn with me once again to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Ephesians 6, as we continue through this last chapter of this wonderful New Testament epistle. We'll read verses 1 through 9, just to remind ourselves of the context and and orient ourselves. But our focus tonight will be on verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 this evening. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last Lord's Day evening. But we'll read 1 through 9 just to refresh our, our minds as to where we are in this section of Paul's epistle. So first, let's read God's word, and then we'll ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Hear it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Oh God, your word is spread before us again this night, and we pray that as we read it, as we study it together, as it is preached, O Holy Spirit, that you would wield your word with might and with force in our hearts and grant us further insight and illumination into your holy word tonight, that you would do it for the upbuilding of your church, for the strengthening of your church, for the beautifying and sanctifying of your church, and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, as we've said all along in Ephesians, this wonderful letter is essentially Paul's handbook on Christianity. It's Paul's Christianity 101. And this second half of the letter is Paul's theology applied, theology expounded, theology uh, established, if you like, in the first half of his letter. And now the second half, it's theology applied. It's his how then shall we live section. And there at the end of chapter 5, on into chapter 6, the apostle has been dealing with the way in which believers in the church at Ephesus ought to relate to one another in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 18, that's essentially the, uh, the theme verse that really f- he fleshes out for the remainder of his letter at the rest of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6. He gives that broad exhortation in, in Ephesians five eighteen: be filled with the Spirit. Or again, if we were being woodenly translating from the Greek, keep on being filled with the Spirit constantly. And then first, you remember, he proceeded to talk about how believers should relate to one another in the church at the congregational level, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, telling Scripture to one another, encouraging one another, singing Scripture even to one another. And then after that, he drills down. So he starts at the congregational level, and then he goes down to the domestic level, of new life together in Christ. And of course, the the three great spheres of domestic life, first marriage, and he spoke there to husbands and wives. We looked at that a few weeks ago, chapter 5 there at the end. 
And then last week, in the first four verses of chapter 6, he spoke to the next uh, domestic relation, the relationship between parents and children. And now, here in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, he speaks to another domestic sphere, certainly one that was common in, common in the ancient world in, his, in Paul's context, the context of masters and servants, or your translation may say bond servant, as it is here in the ESV as I have it, or it may even say slave, depending on your English translation. Now, if you're, you're following along in the outline, you'll see the threefold outline of the sermon, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But before we get to that threefold outline, we have to do a fair bit of groundwork to help set the context and, and f- uh, front end load, if you like, in terms of orienting ourselves to this passage and, and calibrating our understanding about why a passage like this still has so much ongoing relevance for us today. Sometimes people come to a passage like this and they say, well, we don't have masters and servants in our structure of society. We don't have masters and slaves, so there's really not much for us to glean here. No, there really is, but we have to do some grunt work on the front end to help orient ourselves there. Here, brothers and sisters, and whenever we're studying Holy Scripture for that matter, context is king. And we must always be careful that we are extrapolating meaning, exegetical meaning, as the original writer intended. Make sure we're not eisegeting or reading meaning into their words that they did not intend. We must always, some of you are fans of of logic and you know some of your logical fallacies, we must beware the word concept fallacy, if you're familiar with that. There's an old story. Uh, It may be apocryphal, it may not be, but I think it still helps serve our purposes, that either King Charles II or Queen Anne, one of the monarchs, went to visit the newly finished St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's that, that beautiful domed church building designed by Sir Christopher Wren. And upon touring the facility, the monarch was asked what he or she thought about it. And allegedly, as it was recorded, uh, the cathedral, according to the monarch, the cathedral was awful, amusing, and artificial. Or possibly they said awful, pompous, and artificial. Well, that hardly sounds like a compliment to our ears, but words change meaning, as you can hopefully see. What sounds to you and to me like a deep and degrading insult would have meant to the 17th century audience high praise indeed. Calling the cathedral awful meant full of awe, like awesome or awe-inspiring would mean to us. Uh, Calling it pompous meant something more like stately, like pomp and circumstance, uh, when it's played at graduation events, things like that. Uh, Amusing did not mean funny or silly, but it more literally meant inspired by the muses, something seriously amazing, something mesmerizing and so captivating to the eyes. And calling it artificial didn't mean fake, it meant full of art, something beautiful, something splendid to behold. What does that have to do with what Paul is doing here? Well, I'll tell you. It's because when you and I hear the word slavery, particularly in our 21st century North American context, our ears prick up and they immediately think African slave trade, that heinous, man-stealing, transatlantic slave trade that exploited and abused so many here and even especially on the African continent. We hear that word and we think of a dark period in our nation's history. If we had time, there's so much to say on that matter. We might talk about the differences of the institution in certain parts of the Roman Empire and the Greek world compared to uh, the modern slave trade, which still does exist much uh, to the shame of world societies. Or we might compare the slavery of Old Testament Israel, which was something more akin to an indentured servitude to work off debts. Or we might bring up 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul condemns the sexually immoral, liars, 
perjurers and enslavers, among others. But we'll save that kind of lesson, we'll save that kind of argumentation for another time. Suffice for now, words matter and words and context matters and words which sound one way to our ears may not sound, may not have meant originally what the original ears would have heard. Suffice for now to say that Paul is not affirming the institution of slavery per se, that's a discussion for another time, rather what he's doing is dealing with this reality in his exhortation and the reality of this fallen world and he's dealing with the reality of social dimensions in his world. And Paul is saying, Paul is saying that even in situations, even in situations that are intolerable, the good news of Jesus Christ has grace and power and instruction for our lives. He's saying that even slaves, the lowest class of the Greco-Roman world in which he lived, even they must learn to live under the lordship of Christ and in light of the gospel. And if we bear all those things in mind, hermeneutically, in terms of interpretation, as one commentator put it, there is enormous comfort here for us because the text is telling us that there is no one, no strata of human society, There's no place in our culture, be it ever so mean and weak and despised, even slaves, where the gospel light of Jesus Christ does not shine and where there are not clear God-given directives for living for him. Close quote. Friends, brothers and sisters, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your income level is. I don't care what your social standing is. I don't care who your mama is. I don't care what side of town you come from. The gospel is good news for you for you, believer in Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are my brother and you are my sister and this church is a home for you. Now that's enormous comfort. That's enormous comfort that we derive from Paul's words here, but there's also an enormous challenge that we need to consider because this passage reminds us that there is an assumption that Paul has. Paul seems to assume that the church of Jesus Christ, that her her membership will entail all kinds of people. That in any given congregation, there will likely be a whole range of people from a variety of social and economic backgrounds and social and economic standings that find their way to worship on the Lord's Day. Now, we believe God is sovereign. We believe that he has freely ordained all things that come to pass. There are no mistakes in God's economy. And that in the end, there are those that are here, that are part of our church family, are here because God has ordained for them to be here. Yes, Absolutely. Amen. At the same time, godly introspection, spiritual inventory, is a good thing. It's a good thing. Scholars believe that approximately one in three persons in the time of the Roman Empire, at the time of Paul's writing, was a slave. One out of three. One third of the Roman Empire was an enslaved person. And so, if you were at the First Presbyterian Church of Ephesus, reading Pastor Paul's letter or hearing it read to you, and you looked around the room, you looked around the worship hall, on average, your church family, every third person on the row with you would have likely been a slave of some sort. And quite contrary to the typical manner where they were, as they were treated in Roman society, many times sneeringly degraded or even worse, quite the contrary to that, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, these slaves, these lowest of lows in the classes of society are addressed directly in the pages of Holy Scripture as worshipers of the risen Lord and that they are present in the assembly of the saints 
They are slaves seated alongside free citizens, perhaps, perhaps even in the same pew as their masters. And Paul speaks to them with full dignity as image bearers and fully heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ and fully a part of the congregational life of the family of God. Now again, we think, well, all right, but we don't have slaves in our society or in our church, in our congregation, so does this passage have any ongoing relevance for us? Yes, much in every way. As I said, some healthy introspection uh, is, is always, in a way, always an appropriate way for us to respond to and to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Uh, certainly, we are not so arrogant or presumptuous to you know, demand a quota for church membership, as if we have to have certain demographic levels in any given congregation. God is, after all, the one who gives the growth. But still, Paul assumes that the Ephesian church is a church for all kinds of people. Are we a congregation committed to being a church for all kinds of people, all kinds of different people? I think we are, but it's always good to check our hearts from time to time on these things. Are we a people who are comfortable welcoming people who aren't quite like us, different economic backgrounds, different social habits, perhaps? Can we assume that all kinds of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who love his word and who love his ways can find a home and a welcome here among us? You remember what James says in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Our Lord Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And I think that taken in tandem with Paul's assumptions here, it leads us to assume that in general, in general, the average church will have a wide range of all kinds of people from all kinds of economic background coming together in the assembly of saints. And that is something that should not make us uncomfortable, but rather it should be our joy because it means the good news that the gospel is good news for all kinds of people and that it's reaching all kinds of people as they find their way into our walls and into our churches. In fact, I may be going out on a bit of a limb here, but it seems to be that this assumption is proved true based on the fact that we have the ordinary and perpetual office of deacon. The church has deacons. Churches, congregations always have deacons, or at least they ought to. Ideally, every church has deacons, and part of the role of the deacons, until the Lord Jesus comes again, the deacon, an office of service and ministry, is to look after the material needs of the church, including particular care for her widows, her orphans, and the poor. Now, that's not the entirety of their role, but the fact that we have deacons as an an office in perpetuity until Jesus comes back leads me to believe that there's an embedded assumption from God the Holy Spirit that we will have such people in our churches that will warrant their care from now until time eternal, until the Lord returns. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, what is low and despised in the world. Now the point here, brothers and sisters, is not to shame anyone 
who has resources or comfort. No, it's simply to say that a New Testament church has room for the full range of God's children from every strata. And our church, our congregation does as well. And so therefore, if people from every strata of society are part of our family and they're part of our congregation and they're finding their way here among us, then my point is that these verses from Ephesians 6 absolutely have abiding relevance for us as the people of God. We come to this passage, brethren, in humility. We never come to the passages of Scripture standing over them in judgment, but always sitting under it, quite literally in this church, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, quite literally here from the the preaching tower, as some of us call it. We're always submitting ourselves to its authority, and even though slavery may no longer be a dominant institution in our culture, are there not applications, are there not extrapolations here for how we might relate to our employers, or how employers relate to their employees, or how those who are subordinate to us, or those who are under our charge, how we ought to relate to them? I think so. Our Westminster Larger Catechism has much to say here from the Fifth Commandment. Uh, Larger Catechism number 124 referring to the fifth commandment, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? It says, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. And then the catechism goes on to speak about the duties that are owed from inferiors to superiors and vice versa. And a quick note there, sometimes people get concerned when they hear that language of inferiors and superiors. Again, context is king. That word there does not mean I am intrinsically worth more than you or I am inherently better and of more value than you if I am your superior. No, no, 17th century context. Just think of it like this. Who's over me? Who who is my boss? And who is under me? You even hear this language still in the military, superior officer. Right, who is my boss and who is my subordinate? Who is my superior? Who is my inferior? Maybe it's your mom or dad. Maybe it's your boss at work, etc. This passage here in Ephesians 6 is one of those passages cited by the larger catechism regarding the fifth commandment because there's significant guidance for us as we think about how to live Christianly in various callings and vocations and life situations. So with all of that as background, with all of that as helping us calibrate and orient our thinking as we approach a text like this. Let's look to the text, shall we? Verse 5, it gives us that basic fundamental Christian work ethic. You see it there? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. There's that fifth commandment principle that we, we see extrapolated over from our catechism. There's a lawful authority that's over us to whom we owe respect and submission, depending on our context. Maybe children, it's your parents. Maybe uh, employee, it's your employer. Maybe it's the civil magistrate as you live in a society. Now, that's not permission for a tyrannical authority or authority in toto, but it is grounds for lawful authority, and thus it is grounds for rightful obedience on our part. Those whom God has placed over us are to be obeyed and reverenced in the Lord. That's a starting point for a Christian work ethic. That's part of what Paul's driving at here. And then... Paul further fleshes that out beyond that basis, and he talks a little more specifically about ways in which we should work. So two shorter points, and then one longer third point for us to meditate on here. First, and you see it there if you're following along in the outline, first, 
How should we work? How should we labor for the Lord? We are to labor sincerely. Sincerely. Verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Verse 6. Do the will of God from the heart. Or verse 7. Rendering service with a good will. As those whom Christ has redeemed, we ought to be earnest in our efforts, in our vocations. We ought never to be merely going through the motions, doing the bare minimum that we can get away with. What a shame and what a scandal it is when employers have that employee who's cutting corners, stealing time from his employer, doing the absolute bare minimum, and then come to find out later that this guy or this lady is a Christian. May it never be said of us. May that never be said of us. Assuming that it is not sin that we are asked to do, assuming that it is not sin that is placed before us, we are to give ourselves to the task that God has ordained for us to do. We are to labor sincerely. That's the first thing. Secondly, and then, of course, related to the first point, we are to labor with integrity. Labor with integrity. That's the point that Paul makes in the first half of verse 6. You see verse 5? Obey your earthly masters, and then over in verse 6, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Or, and, and I love the way the, the King James puts it because it's always so memorable, man pleasers, not laboring as man pleasers. That's blunt language. But there's the question for us Do we work hard only when someone is looking over our shoulder? Are we putting forth the same effort in all integrity before the omniscient and omnipresent Lord? Not to say that we attain perfection in this life, no, but in our tasks, in our duties, are we offering good faith efforts and labor? Or do we just put in extra effort when we know that there are other people in the room who might notice what we're up to? Or when we know that the work we're doing is going to get showcased, and so maybe I should try a little bit harder? Paul is about to contrast this principle with the next principle. And if we're laboring just for compliments, if we're laboring just for pats on the back, if we're laboring just for the praises of men, then there's a good chance, brothers and sisters, that we've got some idolatry, some internalized idolatry that we need to deal with. How do we counter that temptation to idolatry? How can we be men and women and boys and girls who labor sincerely and with integrity? Well, we do it by drilling down hard and drilling down intently and drilling down thoughtfully on the third principle that Paul gives us, and that is, point number three, we must labor Christward. We must labor Christward. Verse 5 again, notice. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Or verse 6. Work as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Or verse 7. Doing service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Other ministers that I've studied or listened to have said here that Paul teaches us to labor for the glory of God or to labor doxologically, to, to labor for his praise, laboring as though you were worshiping King Jesus in your labors and in your toils and in your work because, friends, you are. You are. Now, admittedly, for many of us, our work doesn't feel like worship. Maybe for some of you it does, but I suspect for not a few of you, your work can sometimes feel like drudgery. Dull, monotonous, never-ending, cyclical repeat of thankless effort and hard work without respite. 
I suspect many of our stay-at-home moms feel that especially to be the case. Mothers of young children, you are seen and heard. Paul says, here's the pathway. Paul says, here's the solution. Consider your work. Consider your work and render it as doxology and praise to Jesus Christ. We labor for Jesus, brothers and sisters. We do it for him. However menial the task, however thankless, however lowly it seems, Christ Jesus is glorified in and by your work, saints of Christ. Christ Jesus is glorified in your work, and when you give yourself to it sincerely and with integrity. This is what the gospel, or more precisely, this is what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of the Lord's people. It can take, as one man put it, it can take mundane drudgery and transform it into doxology. It can take work and make it more than merely work. It can make it worship. It can make it worship. There's lots to be said there. In fact, if we went all the way back to Genesis and to Adam working and keeping the garden, the Hebrew word there that's used work, that's translated as work, later on in the Old Testament, that same Hebrew word is elsewhere translated worship. It's the same word, work and worship. To worship is to work And to work is to worship, at least in the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew conception. There's more to say there at another time, but these two concepts are not nearly as divergent as they are sometimes made out to be. Ever since the dawn of time, the notion of work and worship have been intertwined in the design of Almighty God. Now, I love the connection that's drawn by several other commentators at this point. They draw us to Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. Dr. Wilborn is leading us through the Gospel of John, and so we're going to study this chapter in more detail soon. But before we get there, just let me give you a few sneak peeks before we get there. Remember John 17, verse 4. Jesus prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. Jesus knew that he was, he was what was awaiting him. Jesus knew what was awaiting him to come, that cursed dereliction. The physical torture, yes, of the Roman cross. He knew that that was coming. But more than that, he knew the agony of soul that was about to befall him, that would bring him to the brink, the very brink of despair, bringing him to that point of crying out, using the words of David from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus knew. He knew full well. This was the work that God had given him to do, and he did it. He knew what the end result of his labors would yield. That's why he sweats like great drops of blood, and that's why he cries out from the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, Lord, if it be possible, if it be possible, in your economy of redemption, in your almighty and perfect will, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he was unyieldingly committed to the work. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. He was unyieldingly committed to the work, and truly, truly. Was there ever a more dark and hellish work than what he had to do? Was there ever a task so menial? Was there ever a task so degrading as the work of Golgotha? You think of the Lord of glory, descended from heaven's sapphire-paved courts, the Lord of glory, he of eyes too pure to behold sin, the one before whom the seraphim shield their faces. Ah, holy Jesus, the slave hath sinned, the slave hath sinned, the wretch hath sinned, and it was the Son who suffered. 
The son suffered for the slave. This was his great work, and he did it. And he did it down to the bitter end. And he drank the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it down to the dregs. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul uses this word of Christ himself. He uses that word for slave, doulos, or bondservant. Doulos is the Greek that gets translated slave or bondservant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Remember what Paul says earlier in that same passage, Philippians 2? Your attitude, he says to the Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Have this mind, have this mindset among yourself that was also in Christ. (laughs) Given all that Christ endured, the, the master dying for the slave, the master dying for you, you the slave to sin, is there any chore too dreary? In light of Christ, in light of Christ, is there any task too menial that we ought not to give ourselves over to our work with full sincerity and with Christ-like integrity? And notice here, notice here, that Paul does not give license to an abusive tyranny. No, no. He applies that same Christocentric, that same Christ-centered principle to the masters, not just the servants and the slaves. You see that? Verse 9. Masters do the same to them. Slaves, labor for your masters in a Christ-like way. And masters, you do the same for your servants. Do the same to them, he says, and stop your threatening. Threats and yelling and manipulation and coercion and verbal abuse, they may be a means to get things done. They may be a means to achieve a kind of forced efficiency, sure. But it is entirely inappropriate. And it is entirely out of character for a master, a boss, an employer, a supervisor who is in union with Jesus Christ. Imagine if you will, and it's it's nearly blasphemous to imagine the Lord Jesus Christ threatening, yelling, berating his disciples. Jesus Christ was not weak. He was strong. He, He was a man. He was not effete or enfeebled. But he was one who was gentle and lowly in heart. Paul says, you who are in power over others, you be Christ-like as well. For he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You see that in verse 9. Jesus said, remember, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 7, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you or against you. Friends, we dare not, we dare not presume upon grace We dare not presume upon grace. We dare not behave like a tyrant to others and then assume all will be well in the end because thankfully there's grace to wipe away all my asinine behavior. We expect the holy judge of all the earth to look at us with equity and impartiality. How much more should we exercise such to those who are under us? But do notice verse 8. This Because verse 8 is really the the great finale of this particular section as Paul's giving exhortation to slaves and masters. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave, whether he is a bondservant or free. Do you see what Paul does there? He places all of our labors within the context of eternity. Whether slave or master, 
whether employer or employee, whether leading supervisor or common man, the great end game of it all is not more wealth or more fame or more prestige, but the end goal of hard work, honest, Christ-like labor, the end goal of it all is the approbation of our master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says that in the final judgment, Christ shall reward each according to his work. And as has been said by so many Christian, Christian, work for the smile of King Jesus. Labor, give yourself over to honest, ethical, hard, and sincere toil, and you do it for the smile of King Jesus. That's Paul's point. And in the end, we, if we are believers in Christ, we are slaves and Christ is our master. First Peter chapter 2 makes that clear, that we are his servants. We are slaves of Christ, Peter calls us. We owe everything to him. We belong to him. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that he is the greatest master there ever was. And in the economy of the gospel, there is no better servanthood, there is no better slavery to which we could ever be bound than to be bound in the chains of grace or the, the, the snares of grace, if you like, to King Jesus No greater liberty, no greater freedom to be found than that which is found in servitude to Christ Jesus. And the work to which our master binds us, the work to which he calls us, the work to which we are bound in him, he says, the yoke of it is easy and the burden is light. And we may be pressed with only a light momentary affliction with eternity in view. And that's a word, that's a word that world-weary servants need to hear. I hope that some of you need to hear it tonight, too, and I suspect you do. You hear the messages of, the, of this world's tyrannical masters berating you all the time, all day long. I see it particularly online, and maybe you hear it in discourse and in conversation, in a world that ceaselessly cries with scorn, looks at you with scorn. You hear it all the time. Try harder. Make it better. Educate yourself. Do better next time. Not enough. Do more. Try harder. And here's the master of his servants who says, Come to me, all ye who are weary, and I will give you rest. There's no better master. There's no better servanthood than the bondage of life and liberty that is ours in the gospel of Christ. Labor heartily as unto the Lord. Labor for his smile and labor for his well done. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, would you make it so among us that we would labor for the smile of King Jesus in all that we do, that we would labor not as those who are merely man-pleasers and eye-servants, but we would labor as those with sincerity and integrity, that we would labor in all of our doings Christward, knowing that that is the chief desire of our hearts, to arrive at that great day when you might look upon your servants and we might hear those words of glorious approbation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Seal your word to our hearts this night, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.